it's great to be with you and just uh, excited to get into the Word. I'm, I'm loving Acts. We're going slow, but it's going to be, I just think it's such a fruitful book to consider how the early church lived. And so we're going to pick up where Mark left off last week. And as, as you saw, Peter in preaching the sermon that he preached, another 5,000 people, I don't know if it's 5,000 total now or another 5,000 added, but all I know is that the church is exploding as the gospel is being preached. And, and what happens is that through the healing of this lame man, Peter and John are immediately confronted by the Jewish religious leaders, uh, the priesthood, uh, for they're on their turf preaching, uh, preaching Jesus as the Messiah, and they find themselves arrested, um, put in jail overnight. They're kept overnight as the, the priests and the religious leaders kind of come together trying to figure out what to do with them. How do we confront something that's actually good? Uh, they healed this man. We can't deny that, but we can't let them preach in the name of Jesus because this threatens our whole system. And so what we're going to begin to see is this is the very beginning point of persecution for the Christian church. And it begins with psychological persecution, but it's going to move toward physical persecution. In fact, in the first century, five persecutions against the Christian church broke out where Thousands upon thousands of Christians gave their lives uh, for their king. It's interesting because uh, in our culture in the West, I was reading uh, some thoughts on this text by actually John MacArthur, and he was talking about the, the challenge that we face with non-lethal persecution. And he says that comes against the church in our time. And what he means by that is persecution that, that comes against us as followers of Christ uh, that has to do with uh, attacks upon our belief system, attacks upon our ethics, attacks upon our values, um, attacks upon our, our, cl our claims of Christ as the only way, uh, our attacks against our beliefs around heaven and hell and the resurrection and miracles and signs, and, and how it slowly whittles away the foundations of the church as we try to figure out ways to accommodate um, our modern sensibilities. And, and I think that MacArthur is right in, in saying that this kind of persecution is actually far more damaging and destructive than physical, life-threatening persecution. Because actually, historically, uh, the church has always, even to this day, has always thrived and exploded when it comes under actual physical threat. You look at the Middle East right now, I was thinking about um, my my two good friends from, from Iran, their pastor was killed by the Iranian police. It's illegal to be a Christian in Iran. And so you are running the risk, if you get caught, of being put in jail for your life. You run the risk of being murdered or executed for proclaiming Jesus. In the underground church in China, hundreds and thousands of Christians have been imprisoned uh, for their proclaimed faith in Christ. And yet it hasn't done anything to squelch the gospel. If anything, it's, it's inflamed it. But in the West where the gospel, we have the freedom to worship as we see fit, but we live in a culture that's growing increasingly intellectually, emotionally hostile toward what we believe. It actually is an incredible threat, and I think it's Satan's greatest attack against the church. And what, this is what I thought was fascinating of what MacArthur said. He says, he says, in the culture of the West, the non-lethal persecution that comes against the church in our time, it doesn't kill us, it just makes us compromise. And I think that that is, that is extremely true. And we've seen waves, different movements, 
come and go uh, that, that uh, are t- attempting to, to try to reconcile uh, the Christian faith with, with modern movements, modern sensibilities, cultural norms, uh, reduce the ethics of Jesus to make it more palatable and less offensive uh, to our sensibilities. And all the while, what happens is that Jesus becomes an unwelcome guest in his own house. And this is a dangerous thing. And I think that this story before us shows us how it is that we are to stand up to persecution, how it is that we are to resist persecution. Do we resist persecution by taking up arms? Uh, No, we resist persecution by non-resistant proclamation. We proclaim the gospel and we accept the consequences. Uh, And I think that this is important for us to remember. Look what happens. Here's here's where the the passage takes up. It's the next day uh, in verse 5 of chapter 4. It says, On the next day, the, the rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. So the whole Levitical priesthood is here. Uh, And remember, these are the same people that seven weeks earlier put Jesus on trial and handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. So these these guys are upset because they thought they had rid themselves of Jesus, only to find that he's even a greater problem now that he is gone. And so what happens? And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, and I love this question, by what power or by what name did you do this? And I want you to take into context, the, this is a threat. By what authority? We are the only ones who truly have the authority to be representatives of God in this place. This is the temple of God. We are God's priesthood. How dare you, uneducated men, come into our midst and proclaim salvation in another? The very one that we got rid of is a common criminal. The one who blasphemed and made himself one with God. How, what power? What, how did you do this miracle? And, in, and under whose authority have you done it? And you can imagine, when you think about uh, this, this scene, how incredibly intimidating this would be. You are surrounded by men who actually have the ability to turn you over and have your life ended. And that is very much, I'm sure, what was going through Peter and John's mind. And yet... This is the thing. We need to understand the three reasons, the three primary reasons why they were so offended and why they were so angry. Number one, as I just said, that Peter and John were teaching it all. They weren't raised as rabbis. They weren't trained in in the, the ways. They weren't a part of the Levitical priesthood. These men were actually doing something that was actually against the Jewish law, against the code. They were taking it upon themselves to be teachers of the people, and they were teaching in a way that was contrary to what was being taught. And so this, first of all, offended them. They were angry about that. But secondly, they were really angry that they were teaching about Jesus. I mean, not many weeks had passed since the group had taken part in the arrest and the condemnation of Jesus. And if they hoped that they had gotten rid of their hope was short-lived because here Jesus is now being proclaimed and, and he's being proclaimed with power. And now there are more converts after his death than there was when he was alive. And so you can imagine the frustration that they're feeling. But the third is the most damning thing for Peter and John, especially for the Sadducees that were in the group. For the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And Peter and John not only proclaimed 
the name and the power and the authority of Jesus, but they actually claimed that Jesus, who, who they were putting the blame of the crucifixion upon the Jewish people who were present, they also said that this Jesus, God raised from the dead. And not only did they say that Jesus rose from the dead, but they said that, that those who listen, who put their faith in him, would also experience a resurrection of life. And so they were proclaiming a doctrine that many within this religious group found heretical. And so these three components has brought forth this absolute outrage. And so you can imagine the, the level of intimidation, the psychological persecution that is taking place right now. Uh, and, and knowing Peter's history, you have to wonder how he's going to respond. It's one thing to preach to a crowd and the crowd to be amazed and filled with awe, a little bit of heckling, but for the most part, you just got lots of people getting saved. And then you do it again, you, in the name of Jesus, a man's healed, and then you preach the gospel and the thousands more get saved, and you're just like, this is going really good. And then, and then you're immediately arrested and you're surrounded by the religious leaders of the day, the Jew, his own people arrested, and now his life is on the line, and he already saw what they did to Jesus. And so the two of them, this is the response, and this gives us the insight into how do we face the psychological persecution that comes toward our faith in this modern context, because there is, you have to understand that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And, and this, this dichotomy, remember that the gospel, Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. He wasn't talking about physical violence. He was talking about the gospel of peace divides. It doesn't leave people neutral when the gospel is truly proclaimed and when it's proclaimed with power and authority. And it says, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, third time, he's going to say this five times uh, in this service, name of Je Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Whoa, what happened to the Peter of, of the Gospels? If you remember Peter in the Gospels, Peter was always bold but his boldness was marked by what I would consider to be, and reading between the lines and even seeing his impulsive nature, it was that. It was impulsive and often even arrogant. And I think that Peter was the one. He was the first to get out of the boat to walk on the water, but he was also the one who sunk because he didn't keep his eyes fixed upon Christ. You see, Peter's tendency was to be impulsive and to get in front of Jesus, to not be dependent upon Jesus. And even it, he found himself, he was overly confident in his own ability to follow Christ. But what Jesus had to show him through his earthly ministry and had to show all of the disciples is that no matter how strong they were, no matter how intellectual they were, no matter how spiritual they were, no matter how zealous they were, they would always fail him if they did not have him him empowering them. And so part of the, the training of the disciples was Jesus actually living out a life that they could not live. 
that they might cast themselves in total dependence upon him. Now, here's the thing. When you think about Peter, the night of Jesus's betrayal, what did Jesus, what did Jesus say to, to the disciples? He says, listen, all of you are going to leave me. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna go back to your own. And Peter said, I would never abandon you, Lord. I would lay down my life for you. And what was Jesus's response to him? He says, listen, Peter, I tell you this, that before the rooster crows three times, or before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter says, I will never deny you. He's like, yes, you will. But then I love what he says in John chapter 14, which is the immediate follow-up to that statement. Before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times, but let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. We're told a very specific account in Luke chapter 23, at the very close of the chapter, Peter follows at a distance after Jesus is arrested, and he's watching Jesus be smacked and spit upon and, and uh, just blasphemed against. And here is his Lord and his Savior. And, and remember, Peter's already tried to violently up... When the first one they came to arrest him, Peter rose up and grabbed a sword and cut off, lopped off the ear of, of one of... So everything Peter did was just wrong at the wrong time, impulsive behavior. And now, now fear is setting in because he sees that Jesus wasn't going to actually stop them. I think the only reason Peter lopped off their ears because he's like, this is Jesus. He's the son of God. He's gonna, he could stop all of them by just, he spoke and they all fell down. So what do I have to fear? Let's cut, off their, let's cut off their heads. But now he sees Jesus allowing himself to be brutalized by these men and Peter's own mortality, the threat of physical danger sunk in and he became an utter and absolute coward in the face of real persecution. And when the servants of the priests saw, saw Peter by, the, by the, barrel, the burning fire where he was trying to keep himself warm while they were putting Jesus on trial, they said, hey, aren't you one of his, aren't you one of his followers? Didn't I see you? And he said, I did, not, I did not know this man. I do not know this man. Second time, I, I swear to you, I do not know this man. By the third time, he's, he's cussing and swearing and throwing a fit and saying, I do not know him. Here's what Luke captures in Luke chapter 23 that I think that we often miss because the rooster crowed, but it says in Luke 23, it catches a nuance that I think is so essential to the understanding of the restoration of Peter to the man that he became in the passage that we're reading today is that it says at that moment when the rooster crowed, Jesus turned around and looked into the eyes of Peter. And I would ask you the question of what do you think that look was? Disappointment? Do you think that it was frustration? I've given everything to you. You said you let, sold everything and followed me. You said you'd never deny me. Look it. Was it a, I told you this is what was going to happen, you idiot? I mean, Jesus was often pretty harsh on his disciples. Oh, ye of little faith. But in this moment, what do you think the look was? I think the look was in, very much in line with what he says in, in chapter 14. Let not your heart be troubled. I know you just deny me, Peter, but the look was, I love you. It's okay. I have you covered. This is what I'm going to the cross for. Because no matter how strong you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how spiritual, how zealous, you can never live out the life that I need you to live out apart from my empowerment. And I have come for this very purpose. Peter's restoration 
follows up at the close of John, you see Jesus himself in asking Peter three times. It's like a reversal of the three denials. Do you love me, Peter? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. Second time, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. The third time, Peter's wounded by the question, of course I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And now Peter, he has awaited. The day of Pentecost came, and Peter the denier becomes Peter the proclaimer. And in this passage, this is where his faith is truly tested because when he's proclaiming, his life wasn't, in, uh, it wasn't threatened, but now he is in the same position his Lord and King was. And he has a choice to make, to be a coward and deny or to proclaim. And the key to understanding Peter's transformation is this. Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit. It's the first thing it says. Now, what I want you guys to think about is what does it actually mean? We need to continually address this because the desire for us as a church is that we become a spirit-filled community. And so we have to ask the question of what does it mean to be spirit-filled? What is the response? You know, we think of being spirit-filled as some sort of emotional, ecstatic experience. And sometimes the presence of the spirit upon us can overwhelm us. I shared that story with you of what happened to me in London. That can happen. But what happens here and what you see most, most often in the book of Acts is that the spirit filling immediately is followed by bold proclamation because the spirit's primary role is to actually witness to the reality and the truth of the living Christ. This is what the Holy Spirit does. When he comes into the human heart, his business is to take the risen Lord's life and give it to us, to empower us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. And Peter experiences that very thing. When the Spirit fills us, it says that the love of God is poured out in our hearts. What compels us to actually live differently, to live against the pressure of the culture in which we live today? The only thing that will allow us to withstand that is to truly believe in the depths of our hearts that God is with us and for us and will never leave us nor forsake us. To be Spirit-filled is to be assured that God loves me with an everlasting love, and how can I rest until I proclaim that love? Love, no matter what the threat. And so we come back to that 2 Timothy 1, 7 verse, for God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. Peter, instead of fear, was filled with the spirit, which was, which was followed by a boldness, a power. And I believe that when he looked at, he was not disrespectful to those religious leaders. He was absolutely respectful. He was not resistant to their arrest. He just simply witnessed to what he had experienced and left it for them to judge as they saw fit. Now that's power. That's power under control. It's power under the control of the spirit. But the question is, is how do we become spirit-filled? I want you to think about this. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 18 gives us an interesting insight. Paul writes to the, to the church in Ephesus, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. So I just said in the beginning, just recognizing, just actually seeing a loved one pass, we need to understand that we have to be careful of how we walk, that we're not to be not to be unwise, but to be wise and to make the best use of our time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He commands us to be filled with, with the Spirit. Remember when Tim gave a teaching on that, on that passage? 
when we went through um, Ephesians, for those of you who are at clear back at the annex. The, the point is, what is, why is he using the, disting, uh, the distinction between being filled with wine and being filled with the Spirit? Both actually influence your personality. Both can take control of your personality. And the point is, is what has control of your life? What influence are you under? How are you living? And notice what he says, to be filled with the Spirit is the outcome of obedience. I think this is so important for us to understand. And when I say obedience, what does obedience mean? Is that Jesus doesn't just come to be our Savior, but he is, by very definition, our Lord. And obedience isn't marking off a list of things to do. I don't swear, I don't have sex, I don't do this, I don't do this, I don't do that. It's not that I don't. Obedience is the freedom to do what is right. Obedience is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment, making the most of our time, the best use of our time, and the best use of our time is being witnesses to God's glory, which means that we're witnesses to the person of Jesus Christ. Obedience and surrender are directly linked. Peter had to be broken down to nothing before he could be something in Jesus' hands. He had to be reduced down to a broken man so that God can put him back together in his image. And it is something for us to remember. An old revivalist preacher once said, God can do nothing with a hardened heart, but he can do everything with a broken heart. And he can do nothing with a divided heart as well. And I think that some of you are, you are on that, that precipice where you're, you're moving more and more toward the hardness of the heart because your heart's been consistently divided. You can't figure out why you're not experiencing the presence of Christ and the reality of his strength. You're ashamed of the name of Jesus rather than emboldened by it. How do we know that we are spirit-filled? Shame at the name of Jesus is not a part of the spirit-filled life. Fear and trembling at the name of Jesus is. <laughs> the power of it. Do we all feel shame from time to time in the, of, over the name of Jesus? Of course we do, because we're human and we're broken and we're sinful. And this is why we need Christ, because we can't live out the Christian life apart from his spirit. But the more we yield to him, the more we will understand his love. And the more we understand his love, the more we will be compelled to share that love. See, being spirit-filled means releasing all trust in yourself. It's when you become weak that you are what? Strong. Paul prayed three times, Lord, remove this thorn from my flesh. Do you not understand that my grace is made perfect in your weakness? John the Baptist said, Lord, may I decrease that you might increase. Zechariah says, not by strength nor by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Peter had been reduced to brokenness, but it was in that brokenness that the power of the Spirit could come in, fill his life, and make known the person in the life of Jesus through him. And so I just would encourage you guys, when I think about obedience, um, this is the interesting thing. Something that really messed with my, my spiritual grid, if you will, is to see historically how God is able to use men and women powerfully for his kingdom purposes, all the while them having duplicitous components to their life. I mean, it's hard to find actually anyone in church history that lived a totally holy life. 
And it's, it's troubling when you find out that Martin Luther wrote letters against the Jews, when you read that Calvin had someone wrongfully murdered because he disagreed with his doctrine. It's troubling when you read that John Knox, at 53 years old, married a 16-year-old girl. I find that troubling. Maybe it wasn't in 1700. Uh, I think it's troubling when I read doctrine by Augustine, who thought that the only place that was appropriate for sex is for having babies, and any time else it's a sin. I find that troubling. <laughs> I, I could go on and on, but I even, you know what even been more troubling? Those are just like flaws in thought, but what about, what about the pastor who preached powerfully the gospel uh, in Florida, I won't name his name, but biggest church in all of Florida, who for 30 years preached the gospel faithfully, thousands of people saved, and all the while sleeping with three of his female assistants at the church. And how do we get our head around that? Well, God still used him in spite of that. And so this is, this is the thing. When you see those realities, when I read about Lonnie Frisbee, who is powerfully used in the Jesus movement, at the same time he was going to male strip clubs, and he actually got in trouble for sleeping with a college student, a young male college student, and yet he would go out to the beaches in California and proclaim the gospel, and 300 people would get saved. You're like, how does that work? That doesn't line up. Because I used to hear Tozer say, God will not use an unholy vessel. But he does. But here's the thing. That should not comfort you. And it should not comfort you about me. It's, oh, good. God will use you, Josh, even if you really suck. That shouldn't make you feel good. Shouldn't make you comfortable in your seats. Because here's the thing. If God will use duplicity, how much more will he use single-minded devotion? Because those men may have preached the gospel and the gospel went forth because Paul even said, even when people preach the gospel out of vain, con vain conceit for personal, personal wealth, I praise God that the name of Jesus is proclaimed. Whenever the name of Jesus goes out, even when it's from the lips of a heretic, God still finds a way to honor it. It's a weird thing. It's a power because there's power in the name. And some people misuse that power for their own personal gain. But that doesn't mean that they won't give an answer to their king. And it doesn't mean that it won't do damage when their sin is shown. Because what happened to that church in Florida? Look at the damage that it did to the thousands of people. 30,000 member church. Do you know what damage it did when it came out? The levels of sexual debauchery that was happening from the, by the man that was proclaiming how to follow Jesus? Huge damage. People were like, God used David, and he did all kinds of bad stuff, married lots of women. But I'm like, but all his kids, like, killed each other. How do we, why would we, like, look to that? Those aren't given to us as examples of what we can get away with. They're given to us as examples of how to apply wisdom without actually getting our feet into the muck ourselves, of saying, don't do this because this is where it leads. And we need to understand as Christians, God may not judge us when we stand before the judgment seat for the sins before we put our faith in Christ, but we must understand that it says that everything that we have thought, everything we have said, and everything that we do with our life, will, we will give an account. And it will be tested by fire, and the only thing that will stand are the things that were done by God's Spirit through us. And I think that what we need to aim for as a church is not low, low levels of grace, abuses of grace. We're like, Jesus does everything. We're broken. We can't do anything. The whole purpose of the gospel is that the gospel sets us free not to live as we want, but to do what is right. And anything outside of that is actually enslavement. When we live in a freedom where we can maintain control of our lives, we actually enslave ourselves to sin.
But when we live in total dependence upon Christ, we become free, free to live to his glory. And I think that this is super important for us to understand. Then what does Peter preach? Once again, notice what happens. Once he's spirit-filled, this man of obedience, this man of holiness, this man of yieldedness. And once again, does he preach a new message from what he preached the day before? Nope. He just preaches the gospel again. It's funny that the gospel never gets old. He preaches Jesus Christ, that is, that Jesus, the historical man, was also your Messiah. He is from Nazareth. Remember what was said? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And whom you crucified, once again, putting the blame squarely upon the heads of the religious leaders. You know you crucified him. You're the ones that actually arrested him and turned him over to be crucified. You demanded that a murderer be released. He didn't even have to fill in the gaps because they were there and they were responsible and his blood was on their heads. But Peter, in love, He loved them too much to not tell them the truth. And he told them the truth. And he says, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you as well. And what Peter is saying to them in that is he says, is through the cross, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles that leads us to the resurrection. And what does it say in 1 Corinthians? If Christ Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The fact that Peter declares to them the resurrection tells them that there's still hope for them as well. In fact, we actually know that in the early church, Acts records it that many of the priests did come to faith in Jesus. And so Peter preaches the same gospel and he even uses Psalm 118 verse 22 a messianic psalm, he says, Jesus is the stone which, you, which was rejected by you, the builders. You guys are the builders of this temple, but God has rejected this temple. He has fulfilled his promise, promises to utilize Israel by, through, by doing it through one man, through Jesus, who is the true Israel, who Jesus, that is the, is the first chosen of a, new, of a new humanity. This is how this man was made well. I think that this is important for us to understand because where, where Peter ends is where we need to end. And that is that the Spirit-filled life proclaims the person of Christ. You want to know how we test the Spirit? If the Spirit isn't pointing us to Jesus, it's not of God. That is so crucial that we understand that. That our obedience should be leading us again and again into the personhood of Christ. The Spirit comes to make the life of Christ available to us and through us. That we have been buried with him, but it is by his life that we are now saved. And I love what he says here. He says, there is salvation in no one else. Look at he's giving them, he's preaching the gospel directly to them. He He doesn't want them to be damned. He doesn't want them to be separated from God. He doesn't want them to pay for what they did to Jesus. He wants them to receive God's grace because does not it say within the scriptures that God takes no pleasure in the destruction of the wicked? Does not it say that he desires that all men come to a knowledge of the truth? Does it not say that God so loved the world, that is the whole cosmos, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Peter sees this as an opportunity for life to come into these who were stood as Christ's enemies. He invites them into the family. Now that's boldness. He's not angry at them. He longs for their salvation. And he says there is salvation in no one else. Verse 12 is one of the most offensive verses in the Bible. 
for it, pro- it proclaims the exclusivity of the, of, of the Christian faith. It's one of the things. What is one of the stickers that you see all around Portland on Subarus? What's more problematic, the sticker or the Subaru? <laughs> and why is it always on Subarus? I just, it's a question. It's an observation, cultural observation. Uh, it, you never see coexist on monster trucks. I've never, actually to this day, I've never seen that. Never, you might see NRA, but you're not going to see coexist. Uh, and, and I think about the, the coexist sticker. Doesn't, isn't it such a, isn't such a, such a nice idea. And the whole, the whole idea is like, listen, too many people are killing each other in the names of their gods. And what we need to figure out is that, listen, they all are pointing to the same truth, the same reality. They all lead uh, to, the same, to the same place. And this is, this is, the, this is, this is proclaimed to us in the, in the age of tolerance. I, I think of the, one of the great spokespersons for this movement is Karen Armstrong. She's an academic uh, who wrote a book trying to reconcile Judaism, uh, Islam, and Christianity, and that she personally worships in all three, all three streams of religion. Uh, and, and this is, this is the, the attempts uh, to bring about some sort of compromise uh, out of actually mutually exclusive, especially between Islam and Christianity, mutually exclusive uh, religions. And I don't include Judaism because what we believe in Christianity, it is merely the fulfillment of all that was promised. It is the extension or, the, or Jesus is the finishing of, of the, Jewish, the Jewish faith. But here's the problem, is that the, the illustration I like to say is that if every key opened the door, the house would not be safe. And what we need to understand is this, is that Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That when we talk about salvation, we have baptisms coming up in two weeks. And if you were one of the people that responded to the gospel uh, just recently, or you're, you're here and you've never been baptized, one of the first, remember I said, spirit, being spirit-filled comes out of obedience. The first act of obedience is to be baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. And when we're baptized, I, I always encourage people, I say, when you, when you get up there and say why you're being baptized, I always want people to be God-specific. It's not enough to say, I want to follow God. Because as Tim said, that's not a very helpful word. That can mean a lot of different things. But it's, we know God as the Father, and we know the Spirit as the Helper only through the person of Jesus Christ. And so I always encourage people, before you're baptized, before you are put under and risen symbolically into the newness of life, before your community of faith, proclaim your faith in Jesus this is why the early church, the three words that wielded absolute, uh, absolute authority was Jesus is Lord, because the entire gospel is summed up in those three words. And the, I think it's important for us to also mention that to say that Jesus is the only way, the exclusivity or the narrowness of our message, as I often say, is what leads us into the vastness of our God's love. That Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary. Do all paths lead to the same place? They actually do. They all lead to the feet of Jesus, but they don't all have the same results. For it says in Philippians, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth. But you will bow before him either as your savior or as your judge. And God's heart is that all people would accept the salvation that has already been obtained for them 
in the perfect and total and complete work of Jesus Christ. And so what does the Spirit-filled life lead us to? It doesn't lead us to compromise in the face of psychological persecution. It leads us to a confident, bold proclamation that is backed up by a life lived in humble love and grace toward those around us. I, don't, I want you to see that Peter is not trying to provoke them to anger. He is calling them to salvation. We see this as a conflict between, uh, between the righteous and enemies. This is not what it is. It's about a conflict between life and death. And Peter longs for these men to come to a saving. He loves them because he is filled with the love of Jesus who died for them. The call for us to live out the love of Christ in this culture is to not compromise the truth of the gospel, but it doesn't mean that we go and beat people over the head with their, what, what is, even Paul says, don't judge those outside of the faith. They're dead in their sins and trespasses. What they need to see is a vision of the love of Christ and the gospel being played out in every facet and every arena of our lives. And I pray that we would have the boldness to live out the love of Jesus, to proclaim his name, that we could say with Paul, it is the love of Christ that compels us, that it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, for there is no other name under heaven by which one can be saved. Amen?